0: turning there, Uh, I'll go ahead and warn y'all probably be throughout the Bible this morning, but primarily in John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, and uh, I would imagine at this point uh, in in many of our lives, this particular set of scripture is uh, very familiar to us, even if, you know, the calling out of the chapter might not readily ring a bell, uh, that the scriptures that i'm going to read from which are uh, we'll start at verse one and read down through about uh verse 11 uh is the, the the main idea i guess i want to get across today is about the problem of sin and how that salvation because of sin is a very messy and a very bloody business uh you know that that One of the things that if you've ever studied, you know, other world religions and things like that, you'll find that they all have some significance to blood. And, you know, that even in like things like voodoo and things like that, they, you know, they place a big emphasis on blood. And Christianity places a big emphasis on blood. That early on when God began to tell the Israelites what they could and couldn't eat, one of the big things was he said, said, Don't eat blood. And one of the things that he said was that is where the life is contained. And I thought about that when I read that recently about how that it was then that God also said without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Now, this is one of those things that for a lot of people, you know, that engage in this so-called New Age Christianity or prosperity gospel or something like that, I feel like uh, knocking on the door and saying, what part of without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Do you not understand? And it's not the shedding of your own blood. It's not the shedding of your most prized animal's blood or anything like that, because that's not good enough. But it was the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. But it was a very messy and a very bloody business remitting sin through bloodshed. Now here in John chapter 8, what we find is that the Pharisees yet again have come to Jesus when Jesus is dispensing the gospel and telling the people the good news uh, uh, because in the earlier part of the book in John chapter 3 it talks about Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He was already condemned. Didn't need Him for that. What it needed was that by Him it might be saved. Uh, and if the Pharisees understood anything they would have known there has to be a sinless sacrifice. Uh, it has to be the first. Firstborn, uh, it has to be without spot uh, and without blemish uh, and certified good enough uh, uh, for its blood to be shed. And so they come to this man, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, and they pose a question. Now, after having been a teacher for a couple of years, I can tell you that one of the things that I notice about this. Uh, and, And maybe it's just a quirk of mine, but I don't think it's common only to me. But when somebody interrupts my time in my classroom instructing my students, it annoys me. And that's putting it lightly. It's infuriating in some regards, whether it be one of my students, whether it be the principal of the school, the superintendent of the schools, whomever that it is. And the reason that I feel that way is because I have a finite amount of time to try to do what I'm going to do and somebody just walks in willy-nilly and says, well, you know, I'm going to interrupt what you're doing because it's not important as what I want or I need or whatever. But think about the context in which that this happens. And we'll start reading at verse 1 in John chapter 8. It says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, verse 2, and early in the morning He came again into the temple and all the people came unto Him and He sat down and He taught them. That He comes here. Now He's got a finite amount of time to physically be with the people. And He sits down and He begins to visit and to talk with them. And throughout the Gospels you'll find that what He would do uh, is He would have compassion on them. And He would provide for them during these times. uh, But He was nourishing them with more than just uh, food for their bellies, uh, but rather food for their souls. And so He's teaching them. And then right in the middle of this, a big procession comes in in verse 3 it says, and the scribes the Pharisees brought unto Him a woman, taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they made a big show of it. Now I can tell you right now, as a teacher, I'd have probably thrown them out of my classroom. Thanks be unto God, Jesus is more patient than what Brother Jeremiah is. So they bring in a big procession. They drag her in. They bring her up to Jesus, set her in the midst, so that everybody can see. And I believe that they waited for the perfect time to cause the most disruption. And they bring her in. And it says in verse 4, they said unto Him, Master, and you can just imagine the air quotes going around that, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Audible gasp from the crowd. She's an adulterer brought into the very midst of us. They go on, verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us. Moses, in the law, commanded us. They'd read their Bibles. They knew the Word. They knew what they were supposed to do. And it says, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what? What sayest thou? Because they'd seen him Forgive people. They'd seen him hang out with sinners. They'd seen him dine with publicans. And they thought, you know what? We'll be able to discredit him right here because we got somebody who is visibly guilty. Guilty as sin. Bring her right there in the midst. Caught in the very act, Caught red-handed. And then they say, well, here's what the law says. What do you say, Jesus? If that isn't a loaded question, I don't know what is. As a teacher, I often try to not ask loaded questions. You know, a lot of teachers love to do that. They'll ask a question that it doesn't matter what you say, you're not going to get the right answer. I've never understood the use of that. And I have to tell my students, it's not a loaded question. If you think you know the answer, answer. I won't kill you if you're wrong. It's hard for them to understand. But here they ask this question to Jesus. Verse six, it says, "This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him." But Jesus stooped down and, with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. <laughs> now I can tell you that that's just that's probably not the tactic I would have used. I would have probably looked at him and said, "Well, you know the law so well. Why 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 are you even here?" That would have been very unfortunate for the woman. If I'd have said something like that, because I said, oh, I'm going to go kill her. But it says that Jesus stoops down, begins to doodle on the ground, and I've heard many speculations on what he wrote on the ground. It's not listed here. Now, I've heard preachers say, oh, I believe, brother, that he got down on the ground and began to write the Ten Commandments. Maybe he did. Maybe he drew a smiley face. Maybe he was just writing out a grocery list for all that we know. But the point was is that he didn't answer them. Not immediately. He made them wait on an answer. So there they stand in the midst of this big crowd. Are you not entertained? Here they stand. And Jesus stows down and starts doodling. And everybody's like, something good's coming. And then it goes on and it says in verse 7, So when they continued asking him, they kept asking, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Actually it says first cast a stone at her, just so you don't get upset. And then he goes right back to drawing or doodling or whatever he's doing. And all of a sudden, now what my overactive imagination, what it conjures is an image of like those old procedural uh, police uh, shows, you know, where they get somebody in the interrogation room, and they, you know, the old ones that always show a big bright light right in their eyes, and they're asking them questions and everything like that. And I can just see Jesus reaching up and taking that light, and going "What?" and turning it right in their eyes, and saying, "Won't you look at yourselves?" But you look at the kind of people that you are and why you're really wanting to do what you're wanting to do to this woman. Because Jesus seen the flaw in their whole ideology is that the law that they were quoting says to take both man and woman. Not just the woman. To take them both. The man wasn't present. Did he get a free pass? With the Pharisees he did. But he shouldn't have. And so he tells them this. He goes back to Doolin. And it says in verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. You think of the scene. And I don't believe it was an insignificant amount of time that went by. Jesus doesn't answer them. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't begin to expound upon the Ten Commandments or anything. He's drawn in the dirt or whatever. But he told them, if you're without sin, you go ahead and you cast the first stone. And they began to look at themselves because they knew what sin was. They were experts on sin. They knew it well because they, you know, they were legalists. And if we're not careful, that's where we fall into. We'll look around at everybody else and say, well, I know what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's really easy to see what somebody else is doing that's wrong. But a lot of times we gloss over what we're doing. And so then the oldest one of them, the one with the most seniority, John made it a point of writing that it was the eldest of them, kind of the leader. He looks at himself and realizes, I can't do that. I can't publicly assert to these people around me that I have no sin or the men with me because they know me. And he has to cut a discreet path. Now they come in with much pomp and fanfare, but when they left, they kind of snuck out until that, the scene shows that there's all these people that Jesus had been teaching. And in the midst of them is Jesus stooped down to the ground, doodling in the dirt, And this adulterous woman. Her guilt, the truth of it, is never in question. She's guilty. And so then it says in verse 10, when Jesus had lifted Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? He looks at her and says, You're still alive? You're not destroyed because of your sin. She come to Him condemned. Good is dead. The same way that I came to Him. Condemned. In verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. She avoided death that's good advice in any instance to avoid death. I've seen that as warnings on equipment. Avoid death. Good advice. But he told her, don't go and sin like this again. And the reason is, is because there is a cost to sin. Sin brings about a very messy and a very bloody business. If you turn all the way back into the book of Genesis... You go all the way back to the beginning and you find that in chapter 3 when sin strolls on to the scene, what you find uh, is that Adam and Eve had one rule that they were to obey and they disobeyed it and they did it handily. They didn't just, well, should we? Shouldn't we? I don't know. We'll think about this thing. Me and Eve will talk it over. See if it's the right thing to do. But rather, the serpent just looks at Eve and says, "Ah, fool That won't happen. And he goes ahead. And then, of course, everybody, and I've heard lots of men say this over the years, and brothers, this this is going to hurt, but truth is truth. That they'll often say, yeah, but it was Eve's fault. Adam was supposed to be with her and protect her. To be her helpmate. Her his and him hers. And he wasn't there. She was his responsibility. And he was hers. And then she gets him to sin. He joins her in sin. And then the first thing they do, if you were to turn there, and I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Genesis 3, uh, verse 7. Right after they eat, it says, verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Immediately they realized, oh no, something's wrong, and they tried to cover it. They tried to cover their own sin and they took plants, but plants weren't good enough because when sin comes in, it's a bloody business. It has to be taken care of with blood. And so you'll find that after God pronounces the curse upon man, woman, and serpent and tells them that from the sweat of your face you're going to eat the ground, that the woman's going to have pain and childbirth, the serpent's not going to have legs but slither on its belly. In verse 21, It says, And unto Adam also and to his wife the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. Did those animals do anything wrong? Now, I'm not the -the over-the-top animal rights activist that many people are nowadays. But I can tell you that senselessly and needlessly killing an animal is never a good thing. Those animals didn't sin. They did what God put them here to do. And if you remember... That at the end of all creation, God looked around at everything. Adam, Eve, all of the animals, all of the plants, everything that He had created. The stars above, the waters below. He looked and saw that it was very good. Those animals were still good. They hadn't sinned. But they paid a price for Adam and Eve's sin. In order for them to be covered, they paid a price. And then if you were to turn over into the book of Leviticus... And you say, whoa, Brother Jeremiah, you're getting into Leviticus again? That's like twice in a month's time, yeah. Uh, That in the book of Leviticus, if you read just the first chapter, and I know it's a hard read, Leviticus is difficult, but you'll notice that it details out what to do about sin for the Old Testament. And it talks about if you commit this sin, bring this type of animal. Now it has to be without spot or blemish, firstlings of the flock, a male. And it has to satisfy all these criteria. And every time that it gets killed, it says the one that committed the sin has to put their hand on its head and shed its blood. It was a very messy and a very bloody business. And it continued on that way. Years ago, in the early part of the 2000s, whenever it was that Mel Gibson had made the movie The Passion of the Christ, and, and how that uh, I remember people talking about it, I never went and saw it in the theater. I watched it at home. But I remember watching it uh, and and hearing people talk about it. I said, oh, it's so gruesome. uh, And all the things that it depicts and shows. uh, It's grotesque. Why would somebody show that in that manner? Because sin is a very messy and a very bloody business. And it comes with a very, very high cost. In Leviticus, it talks about how to cut them up. How to divide them up. And shedding their blood, taking the blood and putting it upon the horns of the altar. You think about that, you know, and, and, and as you all well know, I'm not a farmer. I don't like that sort of thing. I don't like dealing with animals or anything like that. But I, I've learned quite a bit about it over the years. And how that there are certain prize bulls, you know, if they have uh, just the perfect genome in order to be able to pass on and have just the healthiest cows, they're worth millions In some instances. Out there in those big farms out west and everything. That people will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just for their bull to inseminate their cows. Now you imagine if you sinned and you had to take that million dollar bull. Because when you sinned, it had to be a male. Without spot or blemish. The best one. Bring it. And no, you didn't even get to eat it. It wasn't like, oh, well, I've got to make a sacrifice. At least we're going to eat good. No, that's not the way it went. It was a burnt offering. You burn it up. Every bit of it. Well, maybe that meant a barbecue, Brother Jeremiah. No. That meant that it was to be offered to God. Every bit of it. Now, you think about that. That is the very definition of sacrifice. You've been up something that you don't want to give up. But you'll find that this very messy... In this very bloody business, sin brings pain and harm and difficulty. You think about the purest form of love in this world, I believe, exists between parents and child. And at one point, because of that love, one of you is going to hurt the other. Either that child's going to die and you're going to hurt because of it, or you're going to die on them and they're going to hurt because of it. That is nothing but pain. And all that pain and suffering and everything else was brought in by sin. And sin is a very messy and a very bloody business. And when Jesus hung upon the cross there, and He began to suffer for my sin, for what that I did. When He looked at that woman and told her, go and sin no more. Essentially He was saying, please stop hurting me. Because that pain that He bore on the cross that's your fault it's my fault it's her fault but the thing is the hope comes in you see from one end of the Bible to the other in Revelation chapter 21 I went from the beginning now I'm at the end I, I, I had never heard this until Adrian Rogers mentioned it in a sermon one time I was listening to him and this is years after he'd even died that he said that in the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, the devil's not in. He's done. And in Revela- at the end of Revelation 20, the last verse of Revelation 20 there, last two verses, I'll read them. Verses 14 and 15, it says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Sin gets dealt with once and for all. It was dealt with on Calvary once and for all. Jesus in the flesh condemned sin and defeated it. And you'll notice in verse... 4. There, John, the same John is writing. And he says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, For these words are true and faithful. Verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done. Sin and Satan are defeated. In warfare, blood gets shed. and It's a very messy, very bloody business. But here in chapter 21, what we find is that there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, and there's no more death. Death came into this world because of sin. After that sin is dealt with, no more pain. No more death. No more sorrow. If that doesn't put a hallelujah in your heart, I don't know what does. Everybody is running around. I I think during this pandemic, everybody has felt death just a little bit closer than they normally did. Everybody taking measures to protect themselves or to protect their loved ones. But imagine being in a place where death is no longer even on the table. It's not even an option. And you may say, Brother Jeremiah, though it is right now, though my body may die in Christ, yet shall I live. Though that this body will know corruption... That in Jesus Christ, having shed his blood, having died upon the cross of Calvary in agony and blood, that he dealt with death. And though this mortal body will die, because of him I can live, because of the messy, bloody business that took place on Calvary. You see, sin caused it to be necessary. It's our fault. But it was his prerogative. To go to Calvary and to deal with it and to deal with sin. I can tell you, it's one thing to suffer because you did something wrong yourself. There are instances where you look and say, I kind of signed up for this. kind of deserve it. Jesus did nothing to deserve Calvary. Just like we did nothing to deserve heaven and to deserve salvation. All that we deserve is hell. You see, a lot of people want to run around and they want to discount the blood of Christ. They want to say, oh, there's another way. There's some other option. There's got to be just because that doesn't fit with my notion of the way things really are. Well, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. the world out there what they're looking around and they're saying is well uh, it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe well yeah in this life but in the next one there's judgment and that's one of the things that comes up readily in this word is that it's appointed unto man wants to die and then after this comes a judgment You'll notice that there is a great white throne of judgment. It was talked about in the previous two chapters before the one I just read out of in chapter 21. And it talks about the judging and the condemnation of sin. But the only ones that actually end up condemned are the ones that refused Christ. They refused the blood. Because anybody that sinned, when we read in the book of Leviticus, they were free to not bring an animal to the priests. They had to choose to do it. Because they didn't want to get separated from God. Because you'll notice in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to look for them. Had to call out to them. Because there was something between them and Him. And it wasn't fig leaves. It was their sin. Sin separates us from God. And the only way to reconcile it is it's going to make a mess. And like I've often preached to my children, it's better to maintain things than it is to try to fix them. Our relationship to God requires maintenance. I know that there are doctrines of eternal security and all of these things out there, and I can tell you that I don't buy into that. I don't believe that a person can backslide as easily as what I've often heard, but I do believe a person can separate themselves from God. It is a covenant covenant has to be held up on both ends well god's not going to let down but we can but at the same token we have to maintain our relationship with god daily or we'll begin to drift we've got to make course corrections or we'll begin to get away from him how does one maintain it you already know the recipe You're already partaking of one big component of it, failing not to assemble ourselves together in the house of the Lord. We've done that. A healthy prayer life. Reading one's Bible on a regular basis. Those are big things. You know, a lot of people would say, well, all you need to do is get saved and get baptized. Well, that's a good start. But I can tell you that if you plant something and you really want it to grow, you'll take care of it. If you have a relationship and you really want it to do well, you'll see to it. That's what we're called to do. When Jesus told that woman, go and sin no more, essentially what He was telling her was you get into the commandments. You dig them out. You find the ones that are hardest for you to obey. And there's where you'll work. You don't need to work on the stuff you're good at. You ever notice that? Whenever you're learning anything, you always gravitate to the things you're good at.
1: Well, they don't need
0: work. You're already good at them. Find the things you're not good at and work on it. But no, that's not very fun, Brother Jeremiah. Well, if you think my doctrine is harsh, you should listen to Jesus's. He said that if your eye would cause you to sin, to tear it out of its socket. Whoa, very messy, very bloody business. Says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's a very messy and very bloody business. That's the kind of problems that sin brings in. That woman that was brought to Jesus deserved to die under the law, condemned. But Jesus in later point that Matthew recorded, He pointed right at the scribes and the Pharisees. and He said, you ignore the weightier things of the law, which are judgment, mercy, and faith. You forget those things. You'd rather kill somebody. What if that had been their daughter? Would they have been so ready to do that? They've been ready to kill her with malice in their heart. You should always hate sin. You never hate the sinner. I've been talking to the kids just recently, you know, and everybody, and I talked to a young couple recently that, you know, are planning on getting married next weekend. And I told them, I said, feelings are great, but you're not always going to feel like that. And I related to him the story uh, that I had heard about uh, Billy Graham and his wife when they celebrated, I think it was their 50th or 60th wedding anniversary, and said that the interviewer asked her, said, in all these years, have you ever considered divorce? She shook her head without hesitation. said, no, absolutely not. She said, murder a couple of times, but never divorce. Because sometimes your feelings, they go the other way. And that's what I told them. And I said, but the thing is, if you ever want to see somebody governed solely by how they feel, just find a toddler and spend a couple of hours with them. They're mean. As long as you're doing what they want you to do, they're nice to you. But you should never govern yourself based on what things feel like, but what's right. And I can tell you, this word is Right. Whether we like it or not. Whether it makes us feel bad or feel good. Whether it cuts us going this way or on the backswing. We come readily to it. Because the way Jesus put it is that it can divide even the body from the soul. Meaning that though this body likes to commit sin, that soul wants to get back to God. And sometimes in dealing with sin, it's going to get messy. But at the end, the result will be the best that you could ever hope for. Let's all stand, get a song.